welcome back to what I hope is another exciting episode of Sustainably Influenced. Now, this wouldn't be my podcast, I'm not going to lie, if there wasn't at least one episode where we chat about farming. It's my favourite topic. It seems to be that I always speak about farming or laundry and you got farming this season. So there will be no laundry episode. You are fine. You don't have to unsubscribe or anything. (laughs) So regenerative farming is what we're talking about in today's episode. And it seems to be having a moment of game changing influence on the beauty industry. And I read scientific journals as well for fun. And I've read over 200 nutrition books and I have a qualification in nutrition because I think what happens on the inside of the body is really important for your skin as well, as well as I'm just super passionate about helping people with their wellness. You know, there are no contaminants that are toxic, like pesticides. I mean, you won't see pesticides on an ingredient list because they are a contaminant rather than the ingredient. So you're using natural ingredients. You can't be sure that those ingredients were grown without toxic agrochemicals. So grab your headphones and get a tea and join me as we explore how this sustainable farming approach is cultivating not just crops, but green and more responsible beauty landscapes. Did you know that conventional farming practices can contribute to soil degradation and environmental harm? Well, regenerative farming swoops in as an eco-hero we didn't know that we needed. Picture this, a whopping 95% of our food comes from the soil and regenerative farming is on a mission to make that soil healthier and more resilient. But here's the beauty twist. It's not just our veggies reaping the benefits. Regenerative practices are seeping into the beauty industry, transforming the way ingredients are grown and harvested. Okay, so get this. Regenerative farming can lead to a 26% increase in profitability for farmers while reducing carbon emissions. It's like a win-win for the planet and our pockets. I want us to look a bit more at these numbers and find out how beauty brands are hopping on the regenerative bandwagon, sourcing ingredients responsibly and supporting initiatives that promote biodiversity and soil health. So we'll be chatting today to some really incredible guests who are trailblazers in the beauty industry and who are pioneering regenerative initiatives from farm to face. These visionaries are disrupting the traditional supply chain and championing ethical practices and proving that beauty can bloom sustainably. And I use the word bloom intentionally, yeah, so pun intended. I actually don't want to talk too much today myself because our guests have a hell of a lot to say on the matter. And there's two guests, so I want you to get as much out of these conversations as possible. First up, we're chatting to Laura Rudeau, who set up Good Ventures in 2008 as an ethical development company with the mission to create new organic personal care brands that are a force for good. Under her Good Ventures umbrella, Laura's created two beauty brands, Evolve Organic Beauty and Adaptology. The Evolve Beauty range consists of 52 products for skin, body and hair and is retailed in John Lewis, Holland and Barrett and Sephora and is available worldwide in over 45 countries. Evolve is proud to have won over 100 industry awards and is one of the first thousand B Corp companies in the UK, which is a huge achievement. And the brand is also certified climate positive, vegan, cruelty free and is a certified living wage employer. Let's chat to Laura. Why does Evolve prioritise the use of high quality ingredients in its beauty products? And how does this sort of commitment to these high quality ingredients align with the evolving expectations of customers and consumers of the beauty industry? So 
We've always used high quality ingredients. I set up Evolve in 2009 and my mission was really to offer people a natural and organic choice in their beauty products and buying. And I really wanted to be able to deliver the same performance that they were expecting from one of their conventional products, but be able to do it with natural and organic ingredients. And I think that those types of ingredients are healthier to use. And I can go into why that is a little bit later if you want. So I think that they're the highest quality ingredients that we can use. And that's why we really prioritise them. But natural and organic is is great. And um, I'm really passionate about it. But they also have to work really well. So my mission is always to look for ingredients that deliver on both of those things so that we can create products that work really well for people. And they're also healthier, both for people and also for the environment. So we use things like peptides, which have got efficacy data behind them that come from natural and organic sources. And we'll be using hyaluronic acid, vegan source hyaluronic acid, which comes from plant-based sources. And things like bioretinol, which can give you the benefits of using a synthetic retinol, but it's actually a plant that has similar properties. And things like ceramides, which come from oats. So we can use those building block ingredients. So we work with the Cosmos standard, which means that they have a minimum level of organic and every ingredient has been checked to check whether it's natural but then we use as much organic content as possible so it will depend on the product so with an oil we can reach you know 90 plus organic and then with something where there are lots of um, water-based ingredients sometimes or say you know something like a wash where it's harder to find all of the ingredients certified organic, we'll still get to at least 20% organic. And that includes the water, by the way. And then we'll be using lots of natural ingredients as well. So we use organic wherever we can. But for me, it being natural and not being full of potentially harmful toxins, which we can talk a little bit more about in a minute, if you like, that is really important. And then it being organic as well, which is better for us, better for the soil. Both of them are important to me. I'm a geek as well, just like you. And um, I think it dates back to when I was really, really interested in wellness because I was having problems with my skin. And so I went on this whole journey to completely evolve my lifestyle and what I was eating. And I really managed to clear up my skin. I had horrible cystic acne into my 30s. It took me 10 years to completely get it clear. And I did it using a natural and organic lifestyle as well as using natural medicine and lots of holistic therapies. And so I'm a massive nutrition geek and I read scientific journals as well for fun. And I've read over 200 nutrition books and I have a qualification in nutrition because I think what happens on the inside of the body is really important for your skin as well, as well as I'm just super passionate about helping people with their wellness. And I think that you can really see clearly that if you use natural and organic ingredients, it's much easier for the body because you're, you don't have to detoxify all of these potential chemicals which are otherwise putting an extra layer of burden on the body I guess I come about I come at it from an evolutionary biology perspective which is to say what did our bodies evolve to do and what are we doing now so I'm quite interested in sort of paleolithic eating and you know what are our bodies evolved to eat and how should we move and then skincare kind of fits into that because we're not evolved to deal with all these chemicals some of them are fine some of them our body doesn't understand some of them confuse our body and it thinks it's a hormone when it's actually not a hormone and then that can really cause problems in the body but yes I think that the closer we can make our environment to what our bodies are expecting and this is a paleolithic kind of environment so it's a very very pure clean environment food is very nutritious so I want to talk a little bit about 
skincare options and how it is that you're making a significant impact. So I guess the market is so saturated now. And I think it's much, I want to say better in terms of sustainable and clean and organic brands than it was maybe 10 years ago. But in a market that's so saturated with various options, can you elaborate a little bit on how Evolve believe that the sort of choice of ingredients makes a significant impact on the effectiveness and the sustainability of beauty products? So when we're thinking about sustainability and ingredients, I guess there's a few different ways to consider it. One is how has the ingredient been grown? So we need to go all the way back to sort of the impact of the ingredient from sort of field all the way to, you know, the ingredient getting into the hands of the customer inside the product. So when we're looking at how an ingredient is grown, if an ingredient's grown organically, it's going to be better for the soil. And that's because when things are grown organically, they don't get grown with pesticides and fertilizers that get used on conventional fields. And that means that the soil is healthier and the Soil Association can talk more about this. And they've done loads of research on why growing organically is better for the soil. And there's loads of data you can find to say that soil health is declining. And in fact, we only have 60 years of soil left. So the way that we're farming at the moment conventionally is actually eroding the soil. So if you go to the middle of America, there's like a big dust bowl and all the soil is blowing away because it's being destroyed by the pesticides that are being used. And the fertilizers that are used are not putting all of the nutrients back into the soil. They're just putting a few of them in. So the soil that is there is not as nutritious as it used to be. And soil is actually a kind of a rich ecosystem and it contains friendly bacteria, a little bit like in our gut. And when you destroy that bacteria, the soil can't hold on to water and it, it can't provide a structure. And that's why it starts blowing away. So if you grow organically and even beyond organically, if you can farm regeneratively, which is a number of different practices as well as organic, like no-till farming, using companion plants, using cover crops and various other things as well, you can actually regenerate the soil. And when it's regenerated, it actually holds more carbon and you can actually put the soil back and make it more nutritious. And we use an ingredient that comes from the Kalahari region, which is called Kalahari melon seed oil, that actually turns desert back into soil. It was originally seen as a weed, and it's the only thing that grows in the Kalahari desert. And this area was devastated by drought. So, you know, there were no jobs. And then a farmer started growing the Kalahari melon seed and extracting the oil to use in cosmetics. And it's a beautiful oil. So this is such an amazing win-win because it regenerates the soil. It provides an income in a deprived area. And then the oil itself is a great oil. It's got really great um, properties to use on the skin. It's very nourishing. It's full of essential fatty acids. So this is the type of organic and regenerative ingredient that we want to start using at Evolve. And we've started using this, but at the moment you can't get ingredients that are certified to that standard. So until that's widely available, we're doing our own research to look for how we can find regenerative ingredients. So one of the things we did this year we launched a balm that had two ingredients it had chamomile and calendula as well as some other gorgeous ingredients and these two we we bought them in as flowers and then we macerated them we turned them into our own extract 
And they're very healing plants. They've been used for centuries to help soothe and heal the skin. In the farm, they're actually used as companion plants as well. They help to nourish the soil and they get used between plantings as part of a mixture to regenerate the soil. So they're really helpful plants. And so they are regenerative, although they don't have a certification for that yet, that helps with the soil. So that's the type of ingredient we love using. And we want to also use ingredients that help to promote sustainability. So I've been down to the rainforest and I have seen a clear cut forest burning when I was there. And when you speak to the people who live there, who are very, very poor, they're just trying to grow things. But you can run projects in those areas to harvest the fruits of all of the rainforest trees, which makes those trees very valuable. And you can then work with communities to support them and then they won't need to chop the trees down so we use several rainforest ingredients things like acai and aroba as a result of the insight I got from that trip so some of our ingredients are sustainable in that way and then other ingredients we harvest very close to home so we try and buy ingredients locally we also use upcycled ingredients which come from the food industry so that reduces waste we use things like raspberry seed oil or coconut shell And those things actually are also sustainable, but in a slightly different way. So they can come from a number of different sources and have a number of different impacts in terms of how they're sustainable. And then what we're also looking at, we've mapped our footprint. So we know what the carbon is of all of our products. We're one of the only brands, I think, who's published that on their website at a product level. And so with that information, we can get insight on what causes lots of carbon. So one of the things is when you air freight materials, of course, to the UK. So we are actively working to minimise any air freight in our supply chain to reduce our carbon footprint, which is our scope three footprint. So it's not the carbon that we emit, it's the carbon that comes from our supply chain. And then they come to our studio ideally not air freighted and then we make them into the products there we don't ship them to some other manufacturer but why does Evolve choose to incorporate more organic elements into the formulations and what advantages do these ingredients bring to the overall product quality now we've spoken a little bit about efficacy but I think if there's anything else that you can elaborate on So there are sort of two different things that it means. The first thing is it means that it has to have a minimum level of certified organic ingredients in it. And why is that important? Well, it's to do with what we were talking about relating to soil health and biodiversity. And it's also because those organic ingredients are going to not have all of the residues of those pesticides and all of the things that non-organic ingredients have. So that's helping to reduce our body burden of those potential questionable ingredients which will end up in those organic ingredients but not every certified organic product is a hundred percent organic it doesn't need to be and in fact it cannot always be because there are not always all of the ingredients that you need to make every single type of product so as I said it's it's fine to make a certified organic 100% organic oil and so you can replace some of the water with other things like aloe vera juice and there are lots of organic extracts that you can add but some of the basic ingredients cannot be organic but the other important element to understand about what an organic certification gives you is that it's the closest thing to a certified clean standard as well because every single ingredient is checked and when I say checked 
they are screened at a very, very rigorous level to look at things you'll never see on the ingredient label, things like what was the solvent that was used to make this extract? And certain solvents, say, for example, hexane is not allowed to be used. And some of those are not allowed because there could be contaminants from some of those solvents that end up in the finished product. And so there'll be lots and lots of things like that that are checked during the screening process when you certify a new product organically they check all of the organic things and then they check everything else as well and only very few synthetics are allowed and lots and lots of synthetics are not allowed at all so you can't for example use silicones you can't use genetically modified ingredients but we tend to use them in really small amounts so we use a natural preservative system in some products we use a 100% natural system and then in others we use a system that has a small amount of synthetic. So our end up percentage that's um, synthetic ends up being like 0.4 or 0.6%. And that's because the thing that's worse than having a synthetic product is having a moldy product. You definitely don't want to put something moldy on your face because you could actually hurt yourself with that product. So product safety and quality is the most important thing. And because there are these number of safe synthetics, we follow the Cosmos rules because they've done all the legwork for us. Before we started working with Cosmos, we had a long list of many, many questions we would ask about, you know, where how is this extracted? What was it preserved with all these things? Now Cosmos do that screening as part of the certification and they pre-approved thousands of ingredients which as a formulator then makes it very easy because we can go to the list of things they've already approved and we know that all of those materials are going to be have been screened to be safe for use and some of the things that they don't allow are allowed in conventional cosmetics and it isn't to say that they are known to be dangerous but they haven't always been proven to be safe either and there are a lot of data gaps for ingredients because there are so many ingredients and so it's really taking a precautionary principle and using those principles of evolutionary biology to say the natural things are more likely to be biocompatible. Our body's more likely to be able to understand them. Now, there are some natural things that are dangerous. So you don't want to put poison ivy on you. That's from nature. We don't want that. And there are things that can still cause allergies. So you still get allergens from essential oils, which are from nature, which you may not be able to use if you have sensitive skin. But I think as a general rule, things that are natural, the body understands them. Things that are not natural may not be dangerous, but the body doesn't understand them. And they may potentially cause problems. And also, they're probably less likely to be ones that the body can use. So if you put a natural oil on your skin, the friendly bacteria on the surface of your skin can digest the oil and turn it into all the things your skin actually needs. Whereas if you put silicones on your skin, they are inert. They're not going to really do anything. They're not really great for the way your skin breathes and works. But the body isn't going to digest that. It's just going to sit there. And so that's kind of the other angle as well. They're not necessarily going to nourish the body because they're not biocompatible in the same way. There is a space for synthetics as long as they're not harmful to you, harmful to the animals, harmful to the environment. Like that's where it should really be at. I think for our final question, I just really want to know about traceability because it's been a hot topic of conversation over the past couple of years. So how do you ensure your traceability and your transparency in sourcing your ingredients? And why is this commitment to ingredient quality and sourcing practices so crucial in the current beauty landscape? And I think that's the more poignant part. It's the more current beauty landscape that I want to know about. 
Well, first, I just wanted to respond to something you said around using synthetics because they can be sustainable, because there is a class of natural ingredients that are from biotech that are super interesting that we've started using. So there'll be things that are grown in a lab. So they'll come from a natural organism. So we use an amazing anti-aging ingredient that comes from Antarctica. The bacteria was sourced in Antarctica, but now the ingredient, which is a glycoprotein that the bacteria make, is grown in a lab. So it is a biotech ingredient. It's in our new lifting serum and it delivers an amazing anti-aging result, better than any synthetic I've seen. And it's a great example because it's really sustainable and it's super effective and it starts from a natural organism. So that I think is an interesting area that we're starting to to get more ingredients from. We use several of those types of ingredients and I think that's a fascinating area. When it comes to traceability, we would love to be able to do more than we already do. We're able to do more than many brands are because we do all of our own sourcing and we don't contract out our manufacturing because when you do that you really don't know where anything's from and we don't do that we buy all of our own materials and we make them in our own studio so we know where we get them from but still the supply chain can have several different steps along the way because we often buy them from a UK distributor and where the original ingredient comes from a lot of cases is another entity in another country so we are reliant on what we're hearing about through the supply chain and when we're gathering data on over 200 ingredients it can be challenging to get the level of information that we want to get so we're already gathering things about country of origin we already know that the uh, ingredients haven't been animal tested because we work with Cruelty Free International and we work with the Vegan Society to certify products to those standards and we have checked all of the supply chains of concern so the mica supply chain we have an amazing gold mask which uses mica in it the mica supply chain has problems in it and sometimes there have been incidents of child labor in that supply chain so we've checked because we knew that that was a risky supply chain we've checked to make sure that that supply chain for us is clean and it's an ethical supply chain but what we really want to do is to be able to map all of the steps in our supply chain in detail and what's stopping us doing it is that we're small with a really complicated supply chain so it's really hard to gather that data from our suppliers because we're really quite a small cog in a great big although you know we're a bigger brand than some we're still really small in the grand picture and so when we try and gather that data we don't get a very good quality data back from all of our suppliers and that also I know from their perspective they get bombarded with all these different requests in all these different formats and I think there's a case to have an open source database of this information because otherwise everyone's just collecting it again and again for carbon footprinting for cruelty free to check the ethical supply chain and I'm proposing this to my colleagues because I'm a B Corp and I'm within the B Beauty Coalition and I'm proposing to them that we start trying to discuss how collectively we can create an open source database. This has been done in the fashion industry. I understand there's something called the Hig Index and Nike was involved in open sourcing some of their data, which helped to make it much more transparent where ethical ingredients were. And I think in beauty, there would be also a case for doing this so that there's just better data. Because I think when we have really good data, we can make good decisions, but it's often where data isn't transparent or it's very hard and complex to collect that it's challenging. And so we would love to have this and we're sort of starting to see how we could create this. But at the moment, that's what's sort of 
stopping us from having the level of transparency that I would really like to get to. So it's on our roadmap in terms of our sort of impact area. And we publish a report every year. We've done it for the last three years. You can read it on our website, which says all about our impact in all of the areas that we measure. So our carbon, our waste. And one of the other areas is this sort of ethical supply chain area. And that's kind of on our roadmap, certainly something that we really want to do. But yes, not an easy thing to achieve. We're not perfect on that. We haven't got as far along as I would like to get. So thanks, Laura. Now let's talk about the unsung heroes of regenerative farming. The bees. Um, We've had a bee episode on a previous season, I think season seven. And these buzzing wonders are playing a really pivotal role, not just in producing honey, but in acting as a barometer for our relationship with nature. And I think most of us have some sort of idea about what happens if the bee population declines any further. Bees, as pollinators, are the unsung choreographers of the dance between flora and fauna, ensuring the reproduction of countless plant species that form the backbone of ecosystems. As we explore regenerative farming, the symbiotic relationship between bees and the environment takes centre stage, reflecting the delicate balance needed for a thriving planet. The harvesting of honey is an art that aligns seamlessly with regenerative principles. So picture this for a second, if you will. Bees are flitting around from flower to flower, extracting nectar while inadvertently pollinating the plants that they visit. The act of harvesting honey involves striking that balance between extracting the nectar from the flower and preserving the ecosystem. Regenerative beekeeping practices emphasise the well-being of the hive and the surrounding biodiversity, ensuring that the process of honey extraction doesn't actually harm the vital pollinator population or disrupt that natural rhythm of the ecosystem. Regenerative beekeeping goes beyond honey production and it's a real commitment to fostering healthy bee colonies and maintaining the diversity of the landscapes that they live in. By doing this and by prioritising these regenerative principles, beekeepers contribute to the preservation of wildflower environments and providing bees with a real diverse and nutritious diet. This in turn strengthens bee colonies, making them more resilient to environmental challenges. So when you savour that dollop of honey that's been harvested with regenerative practices, you're not just indulging in something sweet and delicious. You're actually supporting a holistic approach that sustains both the bees and their population and the delicate ecosystems that they call home. So today's second guests are Tanya and Esme Hawkes from Therapy Skincare. Let's chat to them. So Therapy Skincare places such a strong emphasis on regeneration and regenerative beauty, aiming to contribute to the restoration and protection of the planet. How does the concept of regenerative beauty guide your approach to product development? The key to regenerative beauty for us is that it's restorative. So we've come quite an unusual route into beauty. So I'm a biologist, that's Esme, and um, Tanya, who's my lovely mum, is a beekeeper. So we put nature at the heart of everything that we do. And for us, it was really important that if we were going to create a product, it needed to be doing something for us and the planet. We didn't just want to be producing, you know, yet another thing that really wasn't, that's quite mediocre and actually it's not really doing much for you or the planet. So we wanted to pick the best ingredients, the purest ingredients, and 
we wanted these to be things that you can replenish, those things that you can grow, not things like finite minerals and clays. And we wanted to create skin nutrition that actually fed your skin. So we were really looking at what skincare really means, you know, caring for your skin and how we could care for the planet in creating those products. So regenerative for us really sort of goes beyond the word sustainable because we're not trying to sustain the system that we have, which is broken, really. We're trying to take it back. We're trying to restore the landscape, the the wild landscape and the agricultural landscape and see how these can marry up. And one of the things that was important to us, and this is a big plug for Certified Organic, is that we wanted that third party certification so that we were not only talking the talk, but we were walking the walk as well. And people could see that. So just to touch on what Certified Organic means in terms of beauty products, because it's a very unregulated industry, the beauty industry, the food and drinks industry is much tighter. So you can use a lot of words quite loosely in beauty. You know, we, we, you often hear the word sustainable, natural, green, clean, wonderful words, but they are quite corruptible. <laughs> so actually organic is something that you can have certified. And it means that it's not only cruelty free, so you're not testing on animals, but it also, if you have animal derived ingredients, then you're looking at like the highest animal welfare standards for those animals. It's also free of, you know, things that we know now to be quite controversial, like parabens, phthalates. We don't have any nano particles in the products. You know, there are no contaminants that are toxic, like pesticides. I mean, you won't see pesticides on an ingredient list because they are a contaminant rather than the ingredient. So if you're using natural ingredients, you can't be sure that those ingredients were grown without toxic agrochemicals. And, the, you know, it's wildlife friendly. So we're not putting artificial fertilizers on the land, which pollute waterways. It's leading to algal blooms. It's leading to dead zones in our rivers. Yeah, it's boosting biodiversity on farms. So you get up to 50% more biodiversity on these organically farmed land and ultimately it's climate positive you know you're looking at massive vast carbon capture i think in the uk it's something like 10 billion tons of carbon that our soil can hold but with industrial farming we're ripping away topsoil there isn't that same amazing health in the soil that you see in organic soil so it's a great way to prevent flooding to help mitigate drought So it has all this amazing stuff built in. Let's talk a little bit about your commitment to conscious and loving choices, I guess, which extends to the entire spectrum of your business from raw ingredients and even so much so as talking about the packaging that you're using. So can you elaborate a little bit on this sort of approach and how it's reflected in the integration of honey into your skincare products? Because I think that that's really exciting. So the kind of background to honey So I was working in nature conservation in Scotland for many years and developed a sort of love and understanding of the healing properties of plants as part of my my work. And I also started keeping bees. Um, So my kind of twin passions converged and I began making very simple natural formulations because I had very reactive skin anyway. But it wasn't really till I started using honey that I figured out I'd found a kind of game changer 
in my own sort of first aid kit, as it were. And I began using honey sort of as a superfood, as a sort of first aid medicine, but also topically. And I kind of, unbeknown to me at the time, I kind of, you know, stumbled upon it. But subsequently, sort of 35 years later, we've been using honey in natural remedies for ourselves and for our clients for such a long time. It's nothing new. You know, the ancients have been using honey for thousands of years and for really good reason too. It is a wonderful superfood and it is also, you know, a great sort of antibacterial throat gargle when you've got some kind of streptococcal infection. But topically, there is loads of evidence to support how amazing it is for the skin. So we like to say it has five main properties on the skin. Um, some of them you'll probably know. The first one is, is a natural moisturizer. So it's hydrophilic, which means it loves water. So it draws water into the skin and holds it there and sort of plumps it and keeps it hydrated. So you could think of it more like a hyaluronic acid in terms of, you know, more kind of modern ingredients. It's also naturally antibacterial. So when it comes into contact with the skin, it releases a small amount of hydrogen peroxide, which then breaks down any pathogens. So it has a natural antibacterial effect. Perhaps what people don't always know is that it's a natural exfoliator and skin brightener. So it has natural polyhydroxic acids in it, very, very mild, but they will break down sort of dead skin cells and leave you with a sort of brighter, less congested skin. So people tend not to know that. It's also an amazing skin food full of vitamins, minerals and enzymes. And finally, it regenerates tissue. And that is well known now by sort of NHS nurses because they routinely use honey wound dressings on slow to heal wounds. So what you'll find is in a lot of synthetic skin care, there's a kind of inert base and then one or two actives are added. But in, in our products, like virtually every single ingredient is an active and some of them are multi-actives. And honey is one of those. I think so many people don't understand how powerful the use of natural ingredients are. But more specifically, we talk about the things that you're putting in your body, but these are things that you can also use externally. How does therapy kind of ensure that harvesting of honey aligns with the regenerative principles? And I guess that sustainability side as well, considering that really, really delicate balance between extracting the sweetness from the flower and preserving the ecosystem. Yeah, well, I think that probably to give this answer context, you kind of have to understand what industrial beekeeping looks like. So industrial beekeeping has become this thing where it's honey above all else. So you're seeing beekeepers breed a very sort of boom and bust ecotype of bee where it produces a lot of honey, but it might not have a very strong immune system. So there's a trade-off there. So you're looking at potentially, you know, a very limited gene pool, which we know is not good for anything. It just means that you've got no resilience there should anything go wrong. And then they tend to overstock their apiaries. So where they're keeping the bees, there are too many hives for the amount of forage that's available. And then that forage is often monoculture or, you know, there's very little diversity there. So then the bees are forced onto this diet where they're really only able to access one or maybe a few species of flower. But to live healthily, a bee would need a huge floral diversity. We're talking trees, shrubs, 
wildflowers, you know, ground flowers. And these would span throughout the seasons. So you'd get the really early flowering and the late flowering that keeps them going. So to sort of combat this, a lot of beekeepers will move their bees from one forage type whilst it's flowering to another. So we see this in California where you're moving honeybees thousands and thousands of miles. I think 75% of the USA's bees get shipped to California for the almond crop. And this is incredibly stressful. I mean, their home is getting completely relocated. They're also being put on lorries. So they're spreading disease easily because they're stressed and they're close to each other. And, you know, they then have to reorientate themselves in new unknown land. And then the beekeeper is wanting the honey. So they take off most of the honey. They'll replace that diet with a cheap sugar solution. So again, their bees are suffering from a very poor diet with very little nutrition. And they might be in an area where the farmers are spraying toxic pesticides. And these are like neurotoxins for bees. So, I mean, about probably maybe more than 10 years ago, we are probably more at this point, we were starting to see our own bees that were not on organic land or in wild areas. They were just near conventionally farmed crops. When they were sprayed, the bees would come back sort of staggering to the hive and they'd look like mm. kind of drunk and they wouldn't mm. know where the entrance was. And they were definitely poisoned. You know, at the time we were sort of thinking what's going on. And then also the routine antibiotic use, which you see in all sorts of farming and queen clipping. And this is something that is really important. So the queen is the egg laying bee in the colony. And you need to look at the whole colony as a superorganism. So imagine that the whole colony is one individual. And so if that colony wants to reproduce, the old queen needs to leave, taking some of the colony with her, leaving a new virgin queen or a few virgin queens and sort of starting again. And that's a really good way to break disease cycle, to purge the hive and to carry on the genetic lineage. But a lot of people are clipping the queen so that they can't lose some of their workforce. So all of this is going on and it's not in the interest of the honeybee at all. <laughs> so when we are talking about regenerative beekeeping practices, we're keeping the bees with the bee in mind. So we're putting the health of the bee, you know, in the middle of it. And that sometimes means you don't take any honey. So this year we've had an appalling honey crop. You know, the bees really need their stores of honey to just get through. I mean, they've been eating it in the warmer months because of the weather being terrible. So we're not taking any honey off this year. You know, so we really respond to how the bees are doing. What sort of impact have you observed on the overall quality of the honey that you're using, especially with the current season that's just passed that you're saying you're not taking any honey from the bees? So does that affect the quality in any way? Or obviously you've got to wait now till is it next year? In different countries, it's different. But we really only have one main flowering season, you know, from about April to September. You know who your customer is and who your customer isn't, so to speak. So you've kind of got that knowledge there. But I think this is just such an interesting topic. And one of the things when I was doing a bit of research is that I realized that you collaborate with the government and farmers to inform sort of 
the strategies that should go forward for these pollinators. So can you share a little bit about some of the specific initiatives that you've worked with and kind of highlight your involvement in bee conservation and the promotion of a more healthy ecosystem as well? Yeah, so it was, I think, back in 2014 that the National Pollinator Strategy was published and we helped shape that. At the time, we were starting to see the start of an insect Armageddon and honeybees were the poster girl for it. I mean, they're so, you know, they're so cute. They're so fluffy. And what we were seeing was people like the WI were getting really behind it. They had their own cause. I think it was called SOS, SOS honeybees or something like that. Anyway, a lot of organizations started sort of picking up on this and they started running with it. So we actually collaborated with Friends of the Earth and we took this to the government and we helped shape the pollinator strategy. And that actually got neonicotinoid pesticides, which are one of the most toxic neuropesticides. You know, we were talking about neurotoxic pesticides earlier. So they are one of the worst. And I wish I could remember the figure, but it's like a teaspoon will kill. It, it's yeah, so it's astronomical. The number of you know, bees it's like it all comes. the bees well, yeah. in the UK. You know, it's something crazy, <laughs> and we're spraying it over our fields. So we helped with that, and those chemicals got banned. Unfortunately, a few have been reintroduced on derivations to help with certain things. The government have said it's just for this season, but you need to keep an eye on. You know, things are changing, especially now that we've left the EU. Mm. So we really need to hold the government to account still. And there's some great work being done by Annabelle Kindersley as well on this, who is the head of Neil's Yard Remedies. So we've done that. We also are, as um, mum mentioned, we're the beekeepers at this regenerative farm. It's called FarmEd in the Cotswolds. And it's an educational farm. And that's also how they can bring bees into the landscape. Yeah. Um, you know, either as sort of beekeepers or just as free living bees as well. People don't always know that that's an option. Yeah. So we have this little pocket. It's called the tree hive apiary on the farm where we show some of the different hives that we're using, including some of the tree hives. We have this amazing rocket hive that we had made by Matt Somerville and it's beautiful. You can actually unscrew the floor and you can look up and you can see the bees Bees behaving Yeah, it doesn't disturb them or anything. It's amazing. So part of that is to try and highlight that, you know, you can help bees without really having to do anything, but also to sort of try and show how important Mm. trees are in the landscape because trees are such an important habitat and actually aging trees. So that third, that last third of a tree's life, which we often don't let them have because we're felling them, you know, we're thinking that they're going to, they're dangerous or they're dangerous or they're just unsightly but they're so important they start to hollow out it's a really important place for insects and small mammals and birds to live Mm. so we're trying to show people that actually we need to leave these sort of elders in the landscape that's a lovely way of putting it i love that (laughs) so we're we're involved in that and the last thing i'll plug is this amazing charity called bees for development we pledge five percent of our profits to bee conservation work and they're one of the main charities that we work with and they are giving people in less developed countries the skills to keep bees in a regenerative way 
to bring a bit of income to them and to actually bring a sort of value to the, it's normally rainforest, but to their little patch of rainforest. Because as we know, bigger companies always want, or corporations or governments, they always want a value on land. Yeah, it's hard to value biodiversity. But honey, funnily enough, is one way of getting a commercial product from biodiversity. So it's a good currency. (laughs) I'm so pleased to have spoken with today's guests. Their insights have been incredibly invaluable. I can't wait for the next episode where we'll be talking all about affordable and effective sustainable skincare. Probably not words that you thought you'd hear together in a sentence. But for now, enjoy the rest of your weeks and I'll see you all next week for the next episode. Until then, you can subscribe and listen back to previous episodes of Sustainably Influenced on all good podcast platforms. You can follow at Sustainably Influenced on Instagram and TikTok. This season of Sustainably Influenced was produced by Content is Queen, sound editor Amber Miller and presented by Bianca Foley.